This webcast is for informational purposes only. The content provided does not constitute medical advice or diagnosis, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The opinions and information provided during the webcast are for informational and discussion purposes only. We do not warrant or guarantee the accuracy, completeness, adequacy, or currency of the content provided. This webcast is not a substitute for professional psychological or medical treatment, advice, assistance, or services. Should you or a family member need help with any of the matters discussed during the program, please contact a competent, licensed professional for assistance. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. I'm your host, Dr. Merle Griff. This show is designed to help you, the caregiver. It's not easy, but we can help. On Quote Between Generations, we will be discussing all things multi-generational with practical tips you can use right now to make your life just a little bit easier. I hope you will be able to feel more peaceful, more organized, and more informed by listening to our interviews with guests who will provide you with the information you need to continue providing the unbelievable level of care that I know you do every day. Today, our guest is Peter Bregman. Peter is the author of Four Seconds, All the Time You Need to Stop Counterproductive Habits and Get the Results You Want. Peter has been featured on CNN, ABC, and PBS, as well as being a regular contributor to magazines such as Psychology Today and Forbes. Peter is also the author of 18 Minutes, Find Your Focus, Master Distraction, and Get the Right Things Done. I actually had Peter on another radio show, and when he first came on, I really was hesitant. I thought time management in 18 minutes a day. There are thousands of time management techniques out there. We don't need to be doing another show about another time management technique. However, I found Peter's material was very, very impactful. And since that time, I have shared it with probably hundreds of people. His work is incredible. In 18 minutes a day, Peter helps you focus on the right things, on getting done what is most important to you. And in four seconds, Peter will tell us today how to stop all our counterproductive habits and get the results you want. Welcome to Peter Bregman. Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. So let's get right to it. So people, I think, get themselves into bad cycles You know, they have behaviors that are working out for them. They have these what you call knee-jerk reactions. They react. That doesn't work out for them. It just gets into a really bad cycle, one thing after another. So how do they break that cycle? Well, you know, the it it, first of all, I just want to – I always like to say in any of these interviews that – um, that I, I get into these cycles too, that I, I don't write from this perspective of the guru from on up high that, you know, descends my heavenly perch to share my great wisdom and then I go back to my perfect life. Oh my that, gosh, that, that I'm so not, disappointed. Yeah, I, I struggle with all of these. I mean, I write about the stuff that I struggle with and, and knee jerk gut reactions are pernicious because sometimes we don't even realize they're happening until after they've happened, you know, and we get into, uh, I mean, I, I see it. Um, I used to see it a lot more with my parents. I see it much more with my children now. Um, I once uh, heard someone say, you know, parents really trigger us, which, you know, isn't surprising since they installed the buttons. And, and so like we, you know, we struggle with, with, um, the relationships that we care most about and that we, 
the people whom we love the most, you know, are the people that can oftentimes kind of drive us crazy because we take it so seriously in a way that maybe we don't uh, with other people. So, so knee-jerk reactions are pretty pernicious. And um, you really need, in my view, three things to tackle a gut reaction or a knee-jerk reaction, three things that um, can help you overcome the, the um, kind of immediate response. The first is a moment of awareness, right? We need some moment, a deep breath. This is, this is the four seconds part of four seconds, right? We need a deep breath or something that um, allows us to be aware of the moment and what's going on. We need the ability to resist urges. That's the second thing. We need to resist the temptation to respond the way they, we would in a gut reaction. And by the way, the ability to resist an urge without a moment of awareness isn't very useful because if we haven't realized what's about to go on, we can't stop ourselves from doing something. So we need to realize what's going on. We need the ability to stop ourselves from doing something that's not going to be useful. And in my view, we need a replacement behavior. We need the third thing we need is something to do instead. That something could be silence. It could be do nothing, but we need something that we choose, some way we choose to respond to the situation that we're in that's different than the urge we have, which we know is dysfunctional and is not useful. So a moment of awareness, the ability to resist urges, and a replacement behavior. Actually, that's very interesting to me because when we talk to parents about children's behavior, all right, um, we use the acronym of SIT, all right, which, or if you're ticked off, you could say SIT, however, whatever your mood is that day. But what it stands for is to stop the behavior of the child, all Mm -hmm. right, then to interpret it, you know, explain to them, you know, I know John made you angry, but you can't um, hit him. But the most important piece parents leave out is to teach an alternative behavior. It's great. All right. It's very similar. Because it's true. People have feelings. The the feelings aren't going to stop. The feelings will continue. All right. The question is, what do you do with those feelings? Right. It's great. And how do you handle them? So that's great. All right. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because you say you teach that to children, which I think is really useful. As a parent, I feel like I need it just as much as the children. That, That it's very easy. I mean, I have a... A 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 8-year-old. And I do and say things I'm not proud of in relationship to them when they respond in a certain way or I say something and they say something and it's like very easy to get hooked. And as a parent, uh, I mean, my view is that it's it's like I'm the parent. Like I – it's not – you know, I have to rise above those situations. And it's not always easy because I adore my children. And so – when I see when they don't listen to me, and I immediately project into the in, you know into a drug abusing future because this is what happens to kids who don't listen to their parents. Like I need to contain that and take a deep breath and go. You know what? This is just about doing her homework right now. It's not about like whether she came home drinking, and like it, it's it's I, I I'm I'm blowing this out of proportion because of my own fear of society and the culture and what I think might happen and and so I need to in effect have this moment of awareness and you know resist the urge to respond in a certain way and and then figure out what will work better. So sit is probably just as useful for parents as it is for for the children. I think it's very hard, though. I mean, I was recently speaking to a friend who has a similar profession than I do, and and he was talking about caring for his elderly father, 
all right? right. And he said he suddenly found himself screaming at his father. Mm. And he thought to himself, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be the professional here. I'm supposed to right. be the caregiver, and I'm screaming at this poor man who I should not be screaming at. And he said, right. I just felt terrible, but I didn't know what to do. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, it reminds me that what that reminds me of is I'm making this distinction between parents and children's, but really we're, we're all human beings and there's different power dynamics in different stages of life and different rank and power dynamics in, you know, with, within families. And, but we're all people and we all have these same kinds of struggles. And, um, I understand it. I'm actually, I want to say knock on wood, very fortunate. I feel like, uh, as my parent, I mean, I've always had an, again, thank God, a nice, uh, really positive relationship with my parents. And I find as they age, they're in their mid eighties now. Um, it gets better and better, but I think it's because I have a different perspective too. I'm, I'm terrified of the moment in which, uh, in which I lose them, which I think is, you know, and certainly probably in the next 10 to 20 years. And, uh, and so I, I, you know, I, I kind of put into context. I mean, this is also the ability to resist urges is one of the ways in which you have an ability to resist an urge is to put it in context and to say, you know, it's my mother and she's 85 and she feels really strong. I just had this conversation with my father. My father, we bring the kids over for trick-or-treating uh, to their house uh, in, in New York. They live in New York also. And they live in Florida, but they kind of go back and forth. And they, and I said, I've got this great costume idea. I said to my father, I've got this great costume idea, not for the kids, but for me, because I'm going to go with them. And here's my costume idea. And my father thought about it. He goes, you know, I don't think that's a good idea at all. And I think blah, 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 like what, for whatever reasons. And, and I had this reaction going like, you know what? You're like just stomping on the fun and you're, but then I, I was able to do this exact thing that we're talking about to have a moment of awareness to say, like how important is my costume versus my relationship with my father and what's going on for him right now. And for whatever reasons, he's uncomfortable with this. And, you know, the ability to resist the urge, which is to say, and my replacement behavior was to say, like, it's easy for me to give this one up and say like, uh, no problem. Like I can understand why you'd be a little uncomfortable with that and I'm not going to do it. And I think the, you know, you don't always want to trade off what you want for the other person to be comfortable, but there are times when, that's the right move in order to preserve the relationship and when the issue is not that important to you. But oftentimes when we're really having these knee-jerk reactions, we don't distinguish between what's important to us and what's not important to us. We just land on, they said no, I want to say yes. And so I'm going to fight them on this. But it's actually very useful to say, huh, I, I, it actually gives me some pleasure to, to hear. I mean, it gave me pleasure to hear his perspective and then to say, that's great. If it makes you uncomfortable, I'm really happy to not do it. You know, I, I speak to a lot of people who are family caregivers and for children, for grandchildren, spouses, parents. Um, and they they experience this a lot where, you know, there's old baggage that comes in and a parent or a grandparent or a sibling, you know, says something and they react immediately. Right. And so if you start – to speak about taking a step back, take a breath, just pause for a minute using your technique. Sometimes the reaction is, look, I have no time for this. You know, I don't have time to think this through. This is – what you're asking me to do is just impossible. I mean, what, what would you say to that, Peter? Um, you know, I think everybody has time for four seconds, right? That's <laughs> why 
why I named it four seconds and four seconds is the amount of time it takes to take a really deep breath. And, um, I, my, um, gut response based on some data is that when people say they don't have time for things, that's a blanket sort of cover for, I don't want to do this thing. Right. I mean, and that's true for everything from, how am I going to respond to a loved one versus and like, uh, am I going to work out? Like, I don't, you know, I spoke to someone the other day and they said, and their wife was talking to me. I know them both. They're family friends. And the wife was saying, you know, it's, I really wish that my husband would work out the way you work out, Peter. Cause I work out every day. Like, right. And I was like, really? Why doesn't he? And how oh, he really doesn't have the time. He really doesn't. And I said, well, so let's see what time does he go to work in the morning? <laughs> And she turned all red and she kind of smiled and she goes, actually 10 o'clock. Um, <laughs> are you kidding me? 10 o'clock. I could work out for a week if I, if I got to work at 10 o'clock. She goes, well, you know, he does this and he does that. And I go, look, these are choices. Like it's okay that it's not that important to him to do it or that there's other things that are more important, but he certainly has time. So, you know, do we have time? It depends how important the relationship is. And this is the hard part. How willing we are, how willing we are to work on ourselves to improve that relationship. Meaning it's very easy if I look at a parent or a child or someone and say they have a problem. But as soon as I own it, as soon as I go, whatever, they may have problems. I'm sure they have tons of problems, but I'm in a dance with them and I'm dancing my part of the dance. And at best, it's exacerbating the problem. At worst, it's causing it. And so what can I do if I'm going to be the person who's going to be more skilled in this situation? And I always want to learn new skills. What can I do in this situation to make it better? Because ultimately, my goal is to have a really positive relationship with the people who are closest to me. That's a very clear outcome I'm going for. So the first thing I would say to your friends or the people who say this is, like, what is the outcome you want? What is the outcome you're going for? And if the outcome is a better relationship with your parent or with your loved one or with a colleague or with whomever, if your outcome is a better relationship, what can you do to make that happen? And I promise you that what you do will at times feel uncomfortable to you. So the leadership work that I do, I do a lot of leadership work. And the leadership work that I do is almost all focused on what I call emotional courage. And emotional courage is the willingness to feel things, to feel everything. If you are willing to feel everything, then you can do anything. The reason we don't have a difficult conversation or don't sit in a, in, in someone's anger or don't have a, have a, you know, relationship where they say something and you get all frustrated and stomp off or yell back or do whatever. The reason those things happen is because you have something you don't want to feel. You don't want to feel vulnerable. You don't want to feel shame. You don't want to feel uh, sadness. You don't want to feel something. And as a result of not wanting to feel that, you do something that makes you not feel that anymore. So if I get angry at my daughter, anger is, of, is a rush of power. I, I'm self-righteous when I'm angry. I'm strong. I'm powerful. So why am I getting angry? Because she's doing something that makes me scared. And I don't want to feel scared. And if I don't want to feel scared, if I'm not willing to feel that fear, then I'm going to do something to shut that fear down. 
And what I do is get angry, which doesn't help the situation. So if I want flexibility in how I act, if I want freedom to make different kinds of choices in my relationships, then I need to be willing to feel that fear so that it doesn't get translated into anger to cover it up. Peter, it's very wise. And, and, but I want to get back to something that you said or alluded to. And that was at some point you have to make a decision, I think, on whether the relationship is important enough to you to invest time into it. Right. And if it is, then, then this works. But if, in the end, you feel as though this relationship is not that important to you, then maybe you do need to walk away from it and you're not Which is also a skill, right? That's also a skill and I agree with you. Like a lot of us can't walk away from stuff like that. But absolutely, I mean, I agree 100% that you want to make a decision and say, you know what? This is not a relationship that I really want to be in. Then the question is, which I would still ask you to grapple with, am I willing to end the relationship in a responsible way. So I could end it in, in like in a slightly, um, gosh, this word is going to sound really harsh. <laughs> so I don't mean it to sound so harshly, but I could be a little bit cowardly about it. Right. And I could just like stop answering their calls and stop responding and just kind of disappear. Or I could step up and go, you know what? I, I, I either love you or I don't love you or whatever you want to say, but this isn't working for me anymore. This relationship isn't working. And I want to tell you like what I've really appreciated about it. And, um, and I, I want to shift it because it's not working. And, you know, the way I want to shift it is for us to stop speaking or for us to like whatever it is that you want to say. But do you have the courage to close the relationship in a responsible way that doesn't leave them hanging and doesn't leave you kind of feeling that you kind of escaped it, but you never really addressed it or issued it. That's, that's, um, that's very powerful to, to do it that way. So maybe an intermediary step to ending a relationship is to at least set boundaries. And you have a section in your book that I thought was, was very, very good in talking about the steps to setting boundaries with other people. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. I think it's critical. I think it's critical to be able to say no. I think it's critical. I think, I mean, I, I love the point that you're making. And I think that um, oftentimes we'll end a relationship simply because we are unwilling to set boundaries. So we don't want to end the relationship, but we're not willing to say, you know, all the texting you do at midnight doesn't work for me. So I'm just not going to answer them anymore. Or to say, you know, you when I, I mean, I've seen this, to say, you know, I, you call me and I tell you this is not a good time to talk and then you keep talking for 15 minutes <laughs> and I keep trying to get off the phone and you don't get off the phone. You just keep talking and talking and talking and I don't want to be rude, but I, I, I don't want to pick up the phone when you call anymore. So I'm, you know, I, I actually try to set the boundary and you don't, you don't listen to it. So let's have that conversation. And when we have that conversation, then we're in a real relationship, right? At that point, when we're really talking about it and setting the boundaries, then we're really relating. Otherwise, we're sort of escaping each other or talking behind our backs, whatever. So I love that. And that also, by the way, takes tremendous emotional courage. It's much easier to not pick up the phone than to say, you know what? You don't respect my boundary when I say I only have three minutes to talk. I was right? just actually using a similar example in a training I was doing. I was talking about something called revertigo. And I said, so it's Thanksgiving and your aunt shows up. And she says what she always says, like, 
oh, you look great. Don't worry that it looks to me like you gained 30 pounds. <laughs> or, or don't worry about it. Those wrinkles look terrible. great on you. You were earned oh, them, right? right? So, you, so you start, all right? And and that's why I meant so sometimes you have to make a decision. This is worth it. It's not worth it to me. You right. know? Um, but there's some like that relationship with your aunt over Thanksgiving, like you you, you can't avoid that one. Like, I mean, you can kind of squeeze by her, but, but you're like, there are people in our lives who are just going to be in our lives. Like, unless we don't show up in Thanksgiving for fear of, of seeing them, what you might say is you might see them and say, Hey, look, you look really awesome. Please don't say anything about how I look. Right. <laughs> right. And let it, let it sit and it will be uncomfortable and she won't know what to say. And, but you will have made your point and you could do it very respectfully, but you're just setting a boundary. You're saying, please don't say anything about how I look. And, uh, and then she won't know what to say maybe because she's so used to saying it and she doesn't mean anything by it or maybe she does and I don't know, who knows, but, but it's a way of setting a boundary and maintaining the relationship. I think that's, that's great. I want to talk about, um, you give many examples in your book, um, about the way that you can use these four seconds in a variety of situations. And one of them I found very interesting and that was you discuss pep talks and how pep talks are really the worst thing you can offer someone who fails. And I know that parents, and especially grandparents, I'm a grandparent, you know, we tend to give those pep talks because we think it's going to help, and you don't think it's going to help. Yeah, I don't. I think it's actually, you know, if you actually think about what a pep talk is, it's you're arguing with where they are in that moment. So if someone felt bad because they failed at something and you're telling them how great they are and they shouldn't worry and there will be other opportunities and, you know, at the, in, 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 they, their girlfriend or boyfriend just broke up with them, there will be others. We've all heard that, right? Uh-huh. Yes. All probably said it at some point. <laughs> but that's not what they need to hear right now, right? Like in that moment of that failure, what they need to know is that no matter what happens, you love them. No matter what, you're with them. No matter whether they fail or succeed, that doesn't change anything about your relationship with them. And, and that when you give them this pep talk, you're basically denying the point where they're feeling right now. And what they most need in that moment is empathy, right? They need empathy. Maybe they need to cry. Maybe they need to feel terrible about the failure. Maybe they, this, maybe they come to you hoping you'll make them feel better because they want you to take away their sadness and you, say, in effect, I'm not going to take away your sadness. Your sadness is okay for me. Like I, I could be with you in your sadness in the same way that I could be with you in your joy. You don't have to feel shame about your sadness. You, know, you could feel sad if I you know, failed that test or if I lost that race or if I lost you know, my girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever in that moment, I'd be really sad too. And like be sad. It's okay. I'm not going anywhere. You know, I think it's so much, it's great advice. It's, I think it's very comforting, but I also think it's easier for the person because you're always searching for what advice should I give them? And it's, it's hard. It's sometimes really hard. So sometimes I think you're right. Just being empathetic is, is just what the other person needs. And it's also actually easier for you. Yeah. Although I'll tell you where it's not easier for you, where it's not easier for you is back to this conversation about how you feel. So why do we try to make people feel better? Not just because we want them to feel better, but we don't want to feel what we have to feel when we sit with them in their sadness. 
It's uncomfortable. If your child or your parent or someone is really sad, that makes, that makes you uncomfortable. And so you want to make them happier because it's much nicer to be with them when they're happier. And then it makes you happy. And then you've made them happy, you know, you, hero you. And, and then that feels good too. So, you know, you have to be okay, like not being the person who helps them, like not being the hero who turns them around, but also like feeling whatever you feel when someone really close to you is sad. And that's a hard thing oftentimes for many of us. I'll say for myself, it's a hard thing. Like I want everybody around me to be happy. And, you know, and if I could be the one who makes them happy, all the better. Like, I, you know, I like to, I, I have a savior complex along with everybody else. So, so I have to get used to, you know, the willingness to sit with someone in a place where I'm not going to change them. I'm not going to change anything about them. Peter, you need to read your own words. Did you not say, stop the temptation to fix everything? (laughs) Yeah, that's, you know, I write the words I need to hear. I mean, for me, this is my own, you know, wisdom to myself. It's, you know, how do I become a more powerful leader in the world? How do I, you know, subvert my behaviors that aren't particularly effective and choose better ones? And so, you know, writing this and speaking about it and living it, uh, makes a big difference for me. And I still see it's not easy, but it's, uh, but it's, you know, I'm definitely learning along with everybody else. Peter Bregman, once again, you have written an outstanding book. It's called Four Seconds, All the Time You Need to Stop Counterproductive Habits and Get the Results You Want. How do we get in touch with you? How do we get your wonderful books? Well, hopefully you can find the book everywhere, but certainly on Amazon, it's it's on Amazon. And uh, if you go to peterbregman.com, P-E-T-E-R-B-R-E-G-M-A-N.com, there's links to the book, there's links to my other books, there's links to articles and videos and, uh, you know, the leadership intensive that I run and I run a coach training and uh, all that stuff is all on that website, peterbregman.com. Peter Bregman, thank you so much. My great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we appreciate it. Thank you. My takeaway for this week is to stress to you how important you are. You're a vital force for so many people and you touch so many lives. So it's very important that you take care of yourself. You cannot continue to do what you do without taking care of yourself. So think about those behaviors that are not helping you get what you want. And then take four seconds. Pause and make just a small change. Do not expect 100%. It usually doesn't happen that way. Expect change at, let's say, only 25%, and then 50%, and then 75%. It'll happen over a period of time. Just don't set yourself up for failure. Remember, take small steps. Practice your change and then do it. I know you can do it. Thank you for all your emails. Please keep sending them to me at info at caught between generations. This is Dr. Merrill, and as always, thank you for listening.